With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's Spiked podcast, I just wanted to let you know that there are still a few signed copies left of Brendan O'Neill's new book, A Heretic's Manifesto. Now, the only way to get your hands on one of these is by donating £50 or more to Spiked. And if you do that, not only will you get a signed copy of this brilliant book, you'll also get access to Spiked Supporters, our online donor community. Spiked Supporters is packed full of exclusive perks, and membership is usually £50 for the year anyway, so all in all, it's a hell of a deal. To make your donation and to claim your signed copy of A Heretic's Manifesto and to become a Spike supporter, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash donate. That's spiked-online.com forward slash donate. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And we're delighted to have back again, GB News, Charlie Peters. Hello, good to see you. Coming up on today's show, the debanking of dissenters, the fall of affirmative action, a victory for the LGB alliance, and the curious case of the breastfeeding dad. So uh, a new chilling front has opened up in the culture war, it seems. Um, it used to be the case that you could be deplatformed, you could be censored on Twitter, but now apparently you can be debanked. So this, we've been talking about this phenomenon, particularly in relation to Nigel Farage, who alleges that um, not only has his bank, Coots, kicked him out of his account, but also he's spoken to nine other banks trying to open a personal and business account and is unable to. Uh, he says two things might be going on. One, they might be angry at Brexit, banks being famously Remainerish, or perhaps he is considered a politically exposed person and there are these kind of regulations that may be being applied to vociferously. Tom, I mean, what have you made of this? I think it's a, as you say, it's a very sinister new front in the culture war, in cancel culture. This ability to not just de-platform someone, but to kind of unperson them, to make mm. it very difficult to be a business, to just go about your ordinary life. Um, and it's important to say that whilst certain details about Nigel Farage's particular situation will continue to come out, first of all, it's quite clear that something suspicious is going on. We wait yeah. to get to the bottom of it. Um, but it's important to say that he's underlying a much broader phenomenon than something that is just befalling himself. I mean, in the days after he made his own particular allegation, we found out about this reverend who was banking with the Yorkshire Building Society. He emailed them to say that he didn't much like their pride displays in his local branch. And within days, they kicked him out of his account. And the Times has even seen the emails that it sent to him basically saying that our relationship has broken down because of your discriminatory conduct as far as they saw it. Incidentally, Coots has also recently introduced one of those policies that says something along the lines of if you engage in some sort of discriminatory conduct, we therefore have grounds to get rid of you. So it's quite clearly a broader phenomenon. We've also mm. seen it on the online world, PayPal, various payment services, obviously the Free Speech Union, Toby Young, three accounts associated with Toby. Uh, he lost. Um, again, it's not entirely clear why. They never really explained, but he believes it was down to the acceptable use policy, which again has these kind of new 
hate speech provisions within them. And he only really got them back after a huge, massive backlash. So what's obvious is that financial institutions, banks and so on, are flexing this muscle already. Yeah. And I'm just struck by the fact that because the person at the middle of this particular scandal, this, this story at the particular moment, the person making these allegations is Nigel Farage, that all of these people are so incredibly relaxed about it. They're taking every response from Coots or anyone else with a remarkable amount of credulity. You would think that anything a bank said was complete holy writ. And there's no kind of appreciation for the fact that even if you don't like Nigel Farage, this is clearly a terrifying precedent that's being set here and has already been set in other cases. So I just keep thinking, how do we get into a position where you've got a supposed liberal left people saying that it's completely appropriate for banks to do whatever they like, providing it's going after the people with the wrong opinions? That's kind of what we ended up with. Right now, and I can't be the only one who's noticed that the two arguments seem to go, oh, Nigel Farage is making it up, but they were well within their rights to do that anyway. Yeah. Pick one, mm. at the very least, you could say. And, you know, of course, we don't actually know what's happened to Nigel Farage, and in some cases, it's less clear what the bank's thinking is. But we do know what view the banks take in the culture war. I mean, Coots, as an mm. example, is, you know, always decked in the pride flag. I mean, Halifax last year famously got into a row with customers. It didn't cancel anyone's account, as far as we're aware. But when it did say that if you don't agree with transgender pronouns, don't bank with us, mm -hmm. we don't want your custom. So it's not, you know, beyond the realms of possibility that this is happening, that people on the wrong side of the culture war are being debanked. Or yeah, I think there's a, a tacit appreciation now that if there is some sort of shadowy or big platform that exists, be it Twitter or social media platforms or banks, People just kind of accept that if you tread the wrong line in the culture war, there will be some nefarious activity mm. conducted against you. There will be some way to limit the audience that you receive with your social media posts. There will be efforts to delegitimize your work or indeed to cancel your bank accounts. And of course, being a GB News colleague of Nigel, I'm very concerned. He's very generous with the beers. And so if his, <laughs> uh, if his bank goes down, then um, that's a huge financial cost for the rest of us. Mm. But yeah, there is clearly um, a cultural line here taken by many of these institutions. I mean, they, they wear it on their Twitter platforms, they wear it on their stores. You know, you can't move for pride flags last month on all the banks. Of course, um, those flags only exist on their European and Western accounts that you don't see them um, shared in the Middle East and North Africa, possibly displaying a sort of lackadaisical approach to their commitment to social justice. Mm. But they are very severe in their commitment, I think, to policing the wrong sort of people. and. You know, as Tom referenced there, if they can do it to Nigel Farage, they can do it to a reverend. Yeah. They can do it to you. And so and we're actually running a campaign at GB News right now about don't kill cash and how cash is really vital to personal and economic freedom. I think so many people are waking up to this situation now where even so-called like free banking platforms, um, you know, payment platforms, they might not always think like you. They might not always respect your personal economic freedom. When that goes, if cash is... You know, dilapidated and, and, and taken away from the economic functions that we all rely on, and we're kind of screwed. Mm. And Tom, I mean, you gestured earlier to the sort of online uh, mm. examples of this, um, some of the people who've been censored. I mean, it's the case that companies like PayPal or GoFundMe have actually, you know, been really clear about where they stand mm. on, on some of these issues. You know, I'm thinking about the um, truckers in yeah. Canada, for oh, instance. Yeah who were told that um, the money raised um, for their campaign wouldn't go to the protesters. And for a moment, it seemed as if it was going to um, GoFundMe wanted to give the money to 
charities that it mm-hmm. considered just. I mean, it didn't do that in the end. It backed down. Mm-hmm. And you had PayPal, which um, at one point released a draft policy, which it again withdrew pretty hastily after the backlash, saying that we would, they would essentially fine customers for spreading mm-hmm. misinformation, yeah. Yeah. No, take money out of their accounts just because they've said something that it disagrees with elsewhere. It's becoming incredibly explicit. And I think just because of the fact that they all often back down after a lot of criticism doesn't mean that the precedent hasn't already been set Mm. doesn't mean that the rubicon hasn't been crossed whatever cliche you want to reach for this is already happening and that's why i find the kind of blase attitude from some people towards this the lack of curiosity about some of the allegations that are swirling around so incredibly striking i thought it was interesting that when coots came out made their statement that the reason that we closed nigel farage's bank had nothing to do with politics it was purely about the fact that he wasn't earning he didn't have enough money in his account this is a completely rich person's bank um, Simon Jack from the BBC put that story out, basically just uncritically reported what he had been told from one self-interested party. It very quickly became clear because he had been bombarded by other Coots customers who said, I don't have that much money in my account. And yeah. he was forced to say, a lot of discretion is being applied here. Mm. And that's the problem is the fact that what the issue is, is because of the fact that we had this across elite institutions at the moment, whether you talk about banks, whether you're talking about these Silicon Valley financial platforms, whether you're talking about public institutions even, where they almost don't even know that they're doing it. There is this sort of hive mind mentality. So this, so that's why I find it actually quite plausible that you can have a situation in which a string of banks make the same discriminatory decision. Yeah. And I just find it so striking that, again, there's a kind of lack of appreciation that there's certain things in life that you really can't do without. Mm. And if this is taken away from people so lackadaisically, then does that not raise the hackles of some people? But I think that in this case, and in so many others, you see that the way in which the culture war has just melted certainly one side of its brain completely. They accuse us of just mindless tribalism and all these things. It's really them. They, you know, as soon as someone they don't like gets hit with it, they're absolutely fine with it. But if someone they like gets censored or debanked or whatever, it's the worst thing that's ever happened. And how did we get here? I suppose it's that- really almost cartoonishly unprivileged at this point. You know? Yeah. I suppose doesn't it really get to the nub of what cancellation is all about? It's not just, you know, about making sure a certain view is not aired. It's about unpersoning people, mm. you know, preventing them from living a normal life, from just erasing them almost yeah. uh, from you, the face of the earth. You lose your identity, you lose your access to friends, family, the world, work, and indeed maybe even your own earnings. Mm. And just going on that, that point there about Simon Jackman, the, the BBC's business editor, I don't, I don't even think it was an official statement from Coots. You know, it's just sources in the back. I mean, if we talk about hive mind activity, there are people, you know, bankers, I assume, or kind of financiers within Coots who took it upon themselves to go and brief a BBC journalist saying, oh, actually, this is the reason why, to uncritically report that in a long thread, saying this is what's happened here, and then, of course, row back later. Uh, I think it points to a, a real sickness inside these institutions, whereby you've got people kind of of their own will going out to bat for clearly a very controversial situation engaging in this institution. It's, it's extremely chilling stuff. The Supreme Court of the United States has brought an end to affirmative action. Uh, it has considered race-based admissions policies to be unconstitutional. This is a really about a case um, regarding Harvard and the University of North Carolina. It was brought by Students for Fair Admissions, which is a group of mainly Asian students saying that they'd been discriminated against by these race-based affirmative action policies. Now, Tom, you know, Looking at this, if you were a sane person and you, you saw the level of kind of essentially racist discrimination that was happening against mm-hmm. Asian Americans, you might think, well, good, you know, isn't this a positive step? But that's not quite how people have reacted, is it? It's not. I mean, this is, a, as far as I'm concerned, a quite clear 
blow for genuine racial equality. Yeah. Removing what are, you dress it up as affirmative action, but it's race-based admissions. That's mm. effectively what we're talking about here. And whilst it might have previously been practiced with the best of intentions as far as trying to make sure that you close the gap, particularly between African-Americans and the rest of American society, it has morphed into something incredibly ugly and discriminatory. The idea that this is some sort of prop for white supremacy doesn't really work when, as you were suggesting, the people most disadvantaged, particularly elite universities by this program, were Asian Americans. You got into a situation in which they would have to far outstrip in terms of test scores their black or even white counterparts in order to get there because of the fact that Asian Americans in particular disproportionately do very well at school and in tests and at university and so on. So you had a situation in which you had elite universities having to concoct increasingly, to my mind, Expli- almost explicitly racist sort of policies in order to keep those numbers down. You have yeah. these kind of racial bean counts. We've got too many Asians. What are we going to do about it? You introduce a personality test, which might downgrade certain things which, culturally speaking, Asian Americans tend to excel at um, and upgrade things that maybe they don't, on average, tend to excel at. All of these things which are really, really ugly. And yet the response naturally has been, oh, Jim Crow is coming back. This is mm. the worst thing that ever happened. The other thing that's so mad about this is the fact that... Um, Affirmative action as well is something that has benefited a very small layer of American ethnic minority society. Yeah. That's what, I mean, Wilfred Riley made this point on Spikes today, was that even if you're talking about black Americans, there's this kind of notion about that what this, these policies were doing were plucking kids from the inner city ghettos mm. and putting them in elite universities. It's not what was happening. Yeah. The primary beneficiaries of it, particularly amongst the black American population, were often the very well-to-do, very well-educated sons and daughters of Jamaican or African immigrants, for mm. instance. And what you kind of had an incredibly perverse situation where they were advantaged where, say, the son or daughter of a Vietnamese cab driver was disadvantaged. How could anyone defend (laughs) this? And it's also striking that, again, it cuts across party lines. You poll Americans, do you think you should have race-based admissions? 70% of them say no. Yeah. Um, But it does, as I say, speak to the very topsy-turvy world that we live in now, which is to say that a move to remove race Mm. as as a criterion for whether or not you should get into university is seen as a blow for white supremacy, even when doing so will disproportionately benefit Asian Americans. But that's the the rabbit hole we've tumbled down <laughs> in recent years. Charlie, what have you made of it? Well, I mean, I read uh, Thomas Sowell's book, Intellectuals and Race, an incredible kind of creed against affirmative action a few years ago. And I just had a kind of two-minute audiobook summary of all the arguments in it, which is pretty useful. Uh, <laughs> it saved you. Yeah, good effort there. Yeah, what a waste of time I had on that. So... I think it's a pretty significant blow against sort of you know the race communism obsessive identitarian racialized politics we've had whereby any differences between groups are treated as huge evidences of structural hate and that the system is designed to attack certain groups and you know you always hear I think a lot from people on the right in particular that you know politics is downstream of culture and that if Hollywood is woke then politics will be woke and therefore you have this affirmative action stuff coming through I think the opposite is true. And the reason why we have so much kind of racialized politics and obsession with identity is because of these political structures that govern us and set the standard around the world. Mm. I mean, America being the the global empire of cultural and economic power means that whenever they do stuff, the rest of us really listen in. And on racial politics, that is definitely the case. Now, in Britain, in kind of naught to five-year-olds, um, over 11% of under fives in Britain are of Asian descent. For for blacks, you know, African, West African or Caribbean, it's less than six. Except, but you know, despite that huge population disparity, 
all of our political focus on racial disparity is on black Britons. There's barely any time spent on disparities with other groups. Even like Eastern Europeans are, yeah. don't make the conversation if they have plenty of significant lineage and heritage in the country. Um, so I think, you know, this kind of impact will have a positive effect, not only in America, but also in Britain. All those American companies and universities that recruit from Britain, that have an impact on our cultural setting and our national conversation, no longer will they have the political justification, I think, to push this nonsense onto us. So that's my hopeful take on this change. It's, yeah, I, I suppose it is. What's interesting is that we have, uh, we get America's uh, conversation on race foisted right. on us, but it's even warped for its own context. Mm -hmm. It doesn't even work there no. because America is, ironically, it's far more diverse yeah. than mm -hmm. the race obsessors, obsessors who had you, have you believe mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they seem to do just divide things between black and white. They, it's not only that um, they're ignoring the fact that you know, these Asian Americans are discriminated against. If they do acknowledge their existence, they say they're just puppets mm. for white supremacy mm. or that, you know, that, that they are white as well. There have been some attempts in, you know, American school districts to redefine Asians as mm -hmm. white, as part of the white racial group in order to kind of justify this uh, or to continue this narrative that, uh, of white supremacy being mm -hmm. prevalent. And it, I think it's also worth pointing out that this, whether we're talking about affirmative action or this general way of approaching questions of racial disparities and so on is really bad for, say, Black Americans as well. Yeah. First of all, because of the fact that it's it the, as we were talking about, the vast majority of African Americans are not going to be positive, positively impacted by Harvard taking a, a few um, a, again second generation J Jamaican immigrants into, <laughs> into yeah. their universities. Nothing will change whatsoever. You're also talking about one of the problems which a lot of writers have noted is the fact that again, if you're in a situation where you've got an African-American kid who's going to university. If he's put into a university in which he's not ready for, because yeah. the school system he might have gone through is crap, because for all kinds of different particular reasons, the likelihood that he drops out and ends up with no degree at all is a lot higher. Whether he gets placed at a university that is at his current kind of grade level, if you like, he's much more likely to go on, get that law degree, get a practice, whatever it might be. And the broader point is the fact that essentially treating African-Americans as a permanent victim class, mm -hmm. permanent children who are in need of a leg up in order to get on in society. Meanwhile, you ignore one of the primary things which genuinely does um, impact upon life chances in the black community, but across American society, which is the class questions, which are completely obscured yeah. by this very elitist identi identity politics, which is obsessed with um, university classrooms and boardrooms, but has nothing to say about the inner cities or the factory floor. So again, this no one is well served by this apart from the self-appointed racial bean counters mm. um, who are empowered by this process. Other than that, no one's winning out. From it. And, and and one really you know disturbing thing is the way that this kind of racial movement um, sort of reifies race. It revives racial segregation, racial thinking, mm -hmm. thinking about people in terms of race. I mean, Ibram X. Kendi, uh, one of the you know luminaries of the Black Lives Matter movement, says quite explicitly that. You know, we live in a systemic racist society and the only way to correct that mm. is with discrimination. Mm -hmm. You correct past discrimination with future discrimination. I mean, it's just such a, a horrifying way of looking and thinking of the mm -hmm. world. Extremely. And, you know, Tom points towards the, the struggles that that puts on, you know, black kids who get pushed to a university, which they might not succeed at, they drop out, their, their lives get worse. But it also affects the rest of us too. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing having someone over-promoted into a philosophy seminar where mm. they don't really know what they're talking about and they're not so great on, the, on this week's reading on Aristotle and they probably should have gone to a different university or whatever. But when you start doing affirmative action and boosting people's scores to get into medical programs mm. or engineering programs, 
okay, that's really bad for everyone else too. You know, if you were an American, you, you'd be very nervous, I think, going to have surgery. Are you sure that everybody there has got the qualifications for the right reasons with the right scores? Or have they been bumped up for affirmative action reasons? And again, if it happens at university, there's no reason why it won't happen in other areas of the world. We've seen in, we've seen in, in Britain in the last year or so a big issue with the RAF mm, yeah. doing um, diversity quotas for fighter pilots. Yeah. You know, people that are required um, to, to maintain the defense of the state being picked based on their racial background. Yeah. I, I feel that I feel like the skies are a little less safer with affirmative action policies for, you know, F-35s. I don't want it in there. I definitely don't want it in surgery. So we shouldn't have it at any level. So LGB Alliance, the UK's only uh, charity for same-sex attracted people, has won a quite an important court victory today. It's kind of breaking news as we're uh, recording this. Mermaids, the trans rights um, or the trans activist youth organization, mm. I don't know what you want to call it. Um, it's you hard can't to describe it accurately because you get no. sued. Yeah, I really, I really, yeah, the urge to libel them is very strong. <laughs> Essentially, they tried to strip the LGB Alliance of its charitable status um, in a pretty blatant attempt to silence their campaigning because uh, the LGB Alliance talks a lot about trans issues, gender ideology, how this impacts on gay and lesbian people. Um, but they failed. LGB Alliance is going to keep its charity status. Uh, so, Tom, this is good news. No, it's really good news. I think it's good news not just for the LGB Alliance, but for freedom of speech, but for genuine tolerance and for gay rights itself. I mean, what mermaids were trying to do here, I mean, their technical reason was that the LGB alliance was not purely devoted to its charitable endeavours. It was, if anything, was trying to undermine charities such as itself, which is hilarious given the fact that it's been now launched a years-long legal campaign to take out the LGB alliance. Um, but it was obviously clear what this was. It was it was an attempt to assert that there is only one legitimate perspective when mm. it comes to LGB anti plus, 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 plus issues. And that therefore it is almost illegitimate to be a charity which is solely devoted to same-sex attracted people, mm -hmm. which is what the LGB Alliance is. As you say, it is the only charity in the UK which is solely devoted to those issues. And that fact, combined with the attempt to shut it down, which has happened ever since they were founded back in 2019, proves their point perfectly, yeah. which is to say that the rise of gender ideology has not only just taken some of the focus away from questions of gay rights, it's actually undermined gay rights. As far as if you don't believe biological sex is a thing, then in what sense can you have same-sex attraction? They've been very important, I think, in highlighting the phenomenon of, for instance, lesbians feeling coerced or forced to have sex or to have relationships with quote-unquote lesbians who are still in possession of a penis and all mm. this sort of thing. Again, the various ways in which a kind of really ugly homophobic climate is being brought back via gender ideology. You know, you just haven't had a good shag, essentially. You know, you'll like it if you try it sort of mm -hmm. stuff. It's really horrible. But also in talking about the fact, the questions around children, which is obviously mm -hmm. pertinent to mermaids, which is to say that, again, if we're dealing with gender ideology, if we're dealing in these incredibly regressive stereotypes around, I mean, mermaids would literally have a wall chart that would have G.I. Joe on one hand and Barbie on the other and say, that's, that's male, that's female. Yeah. What do you identify with? That if you recycle these kinds of stereotypes, then what you're going to end up with is a lot of gay boys, lesbian girls, mm -hmm. starting to think, oh, I'm attracted to the same sex, therefore I'm defective. I should be yeah. male or I should be female. I need to correct myself by some sort of procedure. And that's horrifying. And yet, again, through raising these very important points, there was just this desperate attempt to crush them. Good thing about this, not only just that it's burnished free speech, as we're talking about, their right to campaign on these particular issues, 
but it's also that I think they've run a bit of a moral victory as well as far as a lot of the points that they were set out to make were also been vindicated throughout this whole painful and very expensive process that that's been put through. There were some um, quite interesting moments at the tribunal. Uh, one of the chairs of the chairs of trustees um, said she didn't know um, whether babies have a sex when they're born. Mm. For instance, um, of the trustees of mermaids, I should say. I mean, <laughs> has this kind of just exposed gender ideology as a the sham that it is? I mean, they clearly these people have no idea what they're talking uh, about. They keep telling on themselves every time. Yeah. I mean, every every single time there is this story in the media, every time this discussion is revived they cannot help but say completely inane and mental stuff. So if anything, they put the they put the ammunition on the platter for the rest of us to, to take it down. Yet still, they enjoy such ginormous institutional, governmental, legal support and everything they have, even yeah. though it's tacitly insane in many cases, um, which is extremely troubling. And I think I, you guys will probably brand this victory in a different way to me, but I think like the resistance to gender identity or gender ideology stuff in Britain is, a, is the, it's like the only conservative social victory of the last few decades. And it's been achieved by like a, a lethal cocktail of gay men and left-wing women. And like, <laughs> it's, 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 it's with them, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. But no, because, you know, impotent Tories versus these people who are seeing their rights being trampled on and the movement defiled by a bunch of people who don't believe in objective reality. Um, it's, it's heartening to see. And I think it's the kind of, as I mentioned before, the idea that culture is downstream of politics. I think, you know, the, the um, gender critical team recognize this very seriously. And that if they're going to make any difference in terms of shifting people's minds, they've got to strip back the institutional legitimacy given to so many of these people, yeah. which they wear with pride. I mean, quite literally, they will, they will, they will turn up saying, this people, these people sponsor me, these banks give me, give me cash, this minister thinks I'm the best thing since sliced bread but it's all a part of bullshit. Mm. And I think just to um, tack onto that as well, one of the reasons that I think this is so important as well is that it highlights, again, how genuinely reactionary this politics mm. is um, and why it's so natural that a lot of left-wing feminists and veterans of the gay liberation campaign, which is people who've set up LGB Alliance are very much um, of that particular ilk, would have so much problem with them. I and you've effectively had a situation in which you had supposed sections of the left cheering on the attempt to crush a gay rights organization yeah. one of the very few gay rights organizations that still actually exist one which were campaigning against restrictive stereotypes which were being actually used to effectively potentially frog march young children into going through painful and potentially life-altering surgeries i think there's this kind of tendency to see all this stuff as progressive even amongst its critics to see it as a sort of form of progressivism gone mad but there's nothing progressive about thinking the sky isn't blue yeah about thinking that the the terrible treatment of confused children you know put, basically sacrificing at the altar of ideology is great because it's different and it changes things the, the, a lot of the, this what's fascinating whether we're talking about the race issue whether we're talking about the gender issue all kinds of different things is that it has unleashed reified refashioned some very age-old ugly prejudices yeah. but repackaged them as progressive so I, it doesn't surprise me at all that particularly where the gender issue is concerned but not exclusively some of the people who've been most effective at pushing back at that haven't been conservatives necessarily it has been people who recognize this for what it is from the off i suppose there is there is also a kind of populist element to this i think mm. it's that it's taking on the you know the experts who are you know, shrouding, talking complete bullshit about mm. you know, using these bizarre um, sort of language games to justify absolute mm. nonsense. And people like the LGBT Alliance, people like, I don't know, Standing for Women or Kelly J. Keene mm. saying, no, actually, um, a man cannot have a, 
a, a vagina. A woman cannot have a penis. Uh, men cannot be mothers. There's something quite mm-hmm. powerful um, in that kind of uh, truth telling, in that simplistic truth telling. It, it, it's slicing up all manners of sacred cows. Mm. Uh, sacred cows are only starting to exist uh, over a few years, perhaps. You know, they're, they're recent arrivals, but with the enormous amount of support, celebrity support, and governmental support they get, they become deified immediately. Um, it's a real lesson in the, the power of. Uh, truthfulness over social harmony yeah. and, and, and some of the responses you get when you push forward an objective basis for biological sex, um, a, an objective basis for not blocking the natural development of a child, that you will hear things like, oh, are you a biologist? Or can you define what a cat is? Mm. You know, yeah. kind of really ludicrously juvenile and low IQ arguments that any, a child could bat them away. Mm. And um, you know, it's, it's, it's depressing to see them get so much traction elsewhere. And Tom, I mean, one of the funny things about this is that um, Mermaids, the trans youth mm. charity, has been really been hoist by its own petard here. Well, yes, because in the course of it trying to prosecute this legal challenge, it's brought a hell of a lot of scrutiny on its own operations. You know, all kinds of allegations about sending breast binders to young girls without behind parent, parents' backs and so on. But it also has led to its own formal investigation. So back in November, there was an initial investigation by the Charity Commission that was opened up into its practices. It's now subject to a full kind of statutory grilling as a consequence of exposing itself. Um, But I think one thing that we can take from this whole process is that once you get gender ideology, as we've just been saying, in a kind of environment in which it really has to stand up for itself, it wilts very quickly, exposes itself very quickly. The problem that has been from the off is that it's just been protected Mm -hmm. from that kind of challenge. Mm -hmm. But when you're in a tribunal, when you're in a courtroom, when you're in a proper debate, they fall away quite quickly. And that's one of the upsides to this, definitely. And, and finally, um, we, it would be remiss if we didn't touch on the breastfeeding dad. Um, this <laughs> Tom is covering his face. You're d- horrified already. I mean, this... <laughs> I'm having a panic attack with my, with my friends. This is not nice. <laughs> so we learned about the breastfeeding dad essentially last week during a news package by uh, ITV. Uh, yeah. there was a, they were showing us a struggling, what they called a struggling mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people spotted a breast pump. Uh, in one of the cutaways. Mm-hmm. And since then, this man who is a former Labour advisor, Mika Manuela Paolo, has posted an image of himself um, with an infant at his breast suckling on his teat. Um, this has surprised a lot of people. It's shocked a lot of people. It seems to be really be the sort of sharp edge of this gender ideology thing that we're talking about. Well, yeah, I think it, it points to the obsession with ticking identitarian boxes within news broadcasting that whenever, you know, ITV is looking for a struggling mother mm. and the person they pick out is a former Labour advisor, a, a trade union Congress member activist, and uh, is a man who believes that they are a mother and can deliver breastfeeding. Mm. It, it ticks every box that they could ever want. Um, but clearly it's palpably nonsense. This person isn't a mother. And to display your, your, kind of your breastfeeding pump mm. next to the sink, it's, it's, it's almost like showing off. Mm. Your your cultural power over the rest of us that I can mm. get away with this. Yeah, I can show I can show you that I'm a mum and you can't do anything about it. And if you do say something about it, you know you might get arrested. You yeah. know you might yeah. get kicked out of your life. Yeah, it's it, it's it's a provocation. Mm. It feels like that anyway. It w- it was the perfect example as you were just saying, Charlie, of how this is settled the debate about who starts the culture war. Yeah, who, who provokes? Who is gaslighting people? You know, it was fascinating to see that clip went out. And then you had, say, Rosie Duffield, still just about in the Labour Party, despite her horrendous... Oh, oh God bless her, you know. <laughs> says, I'm sure this individual is a lovely person. However. <laughs> he's not a mother. Yeah. yeah. And again, the scorn 
heaps on her for mm. saying something like that. And again, it's that it's 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 that thing that we've seen time and time again, which is through all of this identitarian nonsense. You effectively had the cultural elites and the establishment saying two plus two equals five. Tell me that I'm wrong. Yeah. And this is surely the most insane example of it that we've seen yet. And if you're an actual mother, if you're a woman who is pregnant, you're a pregnant person, mm. you're a birthing mm. parent, mm. you're a um, person yeah. with a bonus hole, uh, I a, don't know if people, or a non-man. A woman with an X in your name for some uh, yeah, reason. Or a WIMXN. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're a man, you can be a mother. Yeah. You can be a woman. Yeah. Stay of the world, I suppose. Um, it gives you enormous amounts of faith. And this uh, this bending of reality, I think it, it certainly it, it harks back to what we spoke about earlier about the affirmative action, action discussion. Actually, you know, this focus on identity over class, instead of focusing really on struggling mothers, instead of focusing on this purely economic struggle mm. that is afflicting millions of families across the country, people in you know the establishment in the news instead. The focus is on scoring a cultural point, scoring an identity-based point. No, this actually really matters. People are suffering. Please don't take the piss. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.